Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And, and we're, we're going, going round Springfield. Springfield. Yeah! I'm so excited for our guests. I just want to dive in. What, what do you say to that? I say let's dive. I'm very excited about this guest too. This is our special, we're in our last five episodes of this special edition miniseries podcast, whatever other descriptors we want to use for this. We're in the home stretch and it's a heavy hitter, all killer, no filler <laughs> up until that finish line. So why not? Let's just jump in. You know our guest because you saw on the episode description who they are, but I'm going to introduce them. Anyway, they are a TV writer best known for their work on The Simpsons and Futurama, for which he is a three-time winner of the WGA Award. He's also currently a co-EP on The Simpsons. Everyone, in your own respective podcast space, give it up for Jeff Westbrook. Hello. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Nice to be here. It's great to thank you for that intro. (laughs) How accurate is it? Did we we Uh, You get all the high points and and (laughs) none of the low points. So, How much is a WGA award worth these days? What's the street value of that? <laughs> they're very heavy and they're sharp, so they're useful defensive oh, tools. Oh, that good. is actually good. That's very nice. So, Jeff, we're really excited. We've been uh, doing a little bit of preparation about uh, some of the things that you have accomplished and achieved. Um, and one thing that we find is often the case is... Um, being very well educated, that seems to be a very important aspect of Simpsons writers. But you seem to really take the cake in terms of not only having gone to Harvard and, of course, like most of the Simpsons writers, writing on the Lampoon, but you also taught at Yale and a researcher for AT&T Laboratories. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, in a way, it feels discouraging for any aspiring writers that are, you know, trying to figure out, like, well, how can I become a writer on a funny TV show? It's like, well, yeah. well, it is a to. guaranteed way in. I'll say that. <laughs> I mean, if you want to be a writer, yep, get your PhD, spend ten years working in the trenches, teach some, do stuff. Yeah, on Futurama, which is the first show I ever worked on. That was that was a that was really a nerd fest, and I I was I was not the only guy with a PhD on that show. I was not the only guy with a PhD in science on that show, and it was uh, it was it was like a little bit ludicrous because you kind of figure like, well, how many writers in the world can there be who have a PhD in computer science who are working on a TV show? And the answer was, well, there's like three. <laughs> <laughs> They're all working on Futurama, apparently. It's, yeah, we, when we were talking to David Cohen on this podcast, you know, we just couldn't help but remark at how that must have been the smartest writer's room, especially in, like, fucking cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> like, that must have been just, like, the top of the top with that. And I'm curious, um, you know, when you come from that, like, Ivy League academic prestigious area, does it, do you feel, like, looked down on transitioning into being a TV writer or does it feel since there are so many Ivy league writers on the Simpsons, Futurama and other places, is it sort of par for the course? Like, Oh yes, that is another path outside of this prestigious educational institution. Yeah. Well, it was very strange. So I guess I didn't so much worry about being looked down upon 
in the industry, although my mother looked down upon me. <laughs> she, was like, she was like, are you crazy? You can't, what? You're giving your- All that time, dude, all that you money. You've got a PhD, you're throwing that away? I was like, well, mom, <laughs> you know, but my friend Ken did it. And uh, that was my defense. So I, mean, I remember once I was working on another TV show called Life on a Stick. And uh, one of the writers there, Mike Ross said, God, you know, this show, it's like, this is the nerdiest writer's room I've ever been in. And I said, Mike, this is the least nerdiest writer's room I've ever been in my entire life. So yeah, perspectives obviously vary a lot. It was odd. It was, I mean, it was a, it was a big decision to sort of change careers quite so dramatically, especially after being quite established as a computer scientist. Like I had, I had a career going there. Um, But on the other hand, the fact that I just knew so many people like David who, and, and, you know, Stuart Burns and, and Al Jean, all of whom had been scientists or mathematicians, you know, and who kind of made the move, made it seem like, well, this isn't as crazy as it seems, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always, I mean, it's, it's not like it wasn't something that, I, that I'd not thought about. I'd thought about it all my life. You, you know, getting out of college, it was that sort of point of like, well, which way do I go with my life right now? And I sort of, you know, my dad, my family, they're academics. My father's professor of applied mathematics. And so, you know, academia seemed like a very natural way to go. And it, it made like, it, you know, this weird thing that people do often tend to end up in the businesses that their parents were in or similar businesses. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, although, I mean, Al ran, Al's dad ran a hardware store. And I don't think Alice ever <laughs> had plans to go back into the <laughs> hardware business. <laughs> but it was something that, I, you know, I'd, I'd always... Even in even you know because I, I I used to write when I was in high school I wrote I wrote an entire James Bond novel I can't find it now but I suspect it's probably oh man terrible what was the title do you remember <laughs> I don't know and I can't even remember what the plot was I just remember it was like I, it was like eighty or ninety pages worth of James Bond novelly plot so you know I, and I did cartoons and stuff like that were you also drawing these cartoons or were you writing them yeah for a while I I, I drew a whole series of cartoons about a frog a clever frog. It was a frog because a frog was very, very easy to draw. I have very little artistic <laughs> ability, but I just wanted to, I guess I was inspired by, you know, all the great cartoons of those days, like Calvin and Hobbes and, mm-hmm. oh, sure. and those kind of things. And, and uh, so just for a while, I just wrote pages and pages of them, which I totally forgot about until my brother said, you know, I was, you know, I was cleaning out your mom, our mom's house and I came over all your old cartoons. Don't you remember? That? I was like, oh gosh, that was oh, amazing. Wow. <laughs> I did all those things. They're a little bit um, simplistic, no doubt about that. (laughs) There's a market for that. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you talk about how your family um, is academic. Your dad was a mathematician. But comedy seems like it was uh, kind of ingrained uh, in in the way that you grew up. It sounds like if you were kind of drawn to drawing and cartoons and, you know, uh, writing, that there was some of that going on in the household. Was that the case or did you kind of find it on your own? Uh, well, you know, so my dad was a mathematician. My mother was uh, an English major, and so she was always throwing great books at me. And that's why I did James Bond because she had the entire collection. So she would say, "Oh, these. wow!" But that's worth a pretty penny now. Yeah. Oddly <laughs> <laughs> enough, it turned out my wife was also a huge fan of James Bond, which is one of the reasons we got together. I think. Oh, wow. Oh, that's sweet and rare. I promised, I, I didn't actually promise on our wedding night that I would write or publish a James Bond novel for her, but maybe I, <laughs> maybe I should do that. Whenever, next time, next time I have a fight, I'll say, listen, honey, I, there's nothing I never told you. I wrote this book for you. Yes. <laughs> um, 
so yes, my mother was very much uh, a, a great books person. A, a, she loved poetry, so from her I got a lot of that. So I was, I mean, I, it's one of those things where I really had two big influences, very opposite, and somehow I was able to do something with both sides of those, which I guess I was very lucky to be able to, to do that. Yeah, it, you know, it's just so interesting. Um, every once in a while I do meet someone who does not have parents that have a sense of humor at all. Not only do they not like to laugh, <laughs> they just have... They judge uh, if you do laugh. Exactly yeah. right. There's just a, a very seriousness about them. And you would not guess that by meeting their offspring because they are so effortlessly funny and it just comes so easily. And so maybe as someone as, uh, as uh, smart and educated as you might have uh, insight as to kind of this connection between intelligence and humor because certainly there are we all know the the kind of dimmer person who's funny the the homer simpson type as yeah. it were <laughs> but then you know the person who's able to to understand the math of a joke really uh, oh. I, I think that that's one of the things that makes the uh, these yes yes mm. these it makes sense the to me that there are uh, you know, Harvard guys in the room, um, that it makes sense that people who you might not think of as the class clown would end up being the secretly funniest people in the room. Um, mm. And I was I was wondering if you could weigh in a little bit about uh, just the connection between smarts and funny. Um, we certainly yeah. wouldn't be the first people to <laughs> look at those things side by side. But. <laughs> but yeah, like, where does your sense of humor come from? Do you believe? I mean, I will like. I hate to go back to the to the nurture theory, but um, you know, my mother's family is a big, mostly Irish family, and they, you know, they're a lot of them are very funny people. Like gregarious, just, yeah. Like or, a lot yeah. of them. Are, like my mother was very chatty too. Oh, she used to drive me crazy. She'd go to the <laughs> grocery store and she'd talk to everybody. And I was a teenager and I hated it. Oh God, embarrassing it's a nightmare. <laughs> uh, and then she'd say, "Oh, my son is so smart." <laughs> okay. It's sort of like being a monkey, like like okay, now yeah. do something smart, yeah. Um, so I so so uh, you know that that uh, I think that that side of the family that sort of being like very like dry, sarcastic, but don't don't take anything seriously, sort of like a little bit of a cynical take on the world. I think that I can't you know I can't say if it's nurture or nature, but there's something there. Maybe there's a, a corollary with those two things. Corollary. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to come back to that. We'll have to get I want to spend two more minutes on this. Yeah. <laughs> see that. See that. So so that time. goes to the to the question of like smarts, right? Because some people, uh, I mean, they like language. Like language is interesting. The intricacies of language. And I think if you're a person who who finds language fascinating and the intricacies of language, that'll that'll maybe you're inclined to be a to make puns and. That kind of that kind of quote witticism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wordplay, which a lot of I mean, a lot of the Simpsons is is highly wordplay. It's always been a show where there's just a huge focus on wordplay, and every line has to have something in it that brings it up from just the line. Yeah, you know, we used to talk about it's a, th a third level joke where it's like there's the there's the basic joke, then there's the twist on the joke, and then there's the wordplay that makes it jump out as a funny way to interesting way to say it and that kind of craftsmanship where every line is looked at for you know 
in itself is interesting and weird and something, a funny way to say something. That's not done on every show. And sometimes it gets in the way of stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're writing for The Office, that kind of line will get in the way because The Office is right. supposed to be exactly a, you know, we're, we've got a camera on people and keep, real people don't come out with crazy convoluted stuff. So The Simpsons. <laughs> and if they do, they're very annoying. <laughs> they're annoying, right. Yeah. And people get mad. But, and it, right. it, it, kind of, it, gets in the, it gets in the way of the joke, right. So, you know, yeah. The Simpsons attracts people who like that. And I mean, or, or the people who, who created The Simpsons like that. And as a result, they, that they made it sort of part of the medier of the show. Yeah. That's why I think it tends to attract people who take a little bit of a delight in the wordplay, the language itself. You know, and that may go back to being, you know, if, if, you, if you like wordplay, then perhaps you want to be educated. Yeah, you have to know words in order. <laughs> have to you play considered with them. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a difference between wanting to be, you know, being educated and be, you know, you can be very smart and not be educated. And people sure. who want to be educated, obviously, they're good at being educated, but you have to want to do it too. So, I mean, there's a yeah, weird yeah. interplay of what you like and what you're good at that gets mm-hmm, you to mm-hmm. ends that ends you up, say, working on The Simpsons as opposed to other shows. You know, so that's a very rambling. Very rambling discussion. <laughs> <laughs> now you know what. Now you know what my college lectures were like. I remember. <laughs> I do remember a student saying to me once, "Can you just teach us some fucking computer science?" <laughs> After, they he said didn't that say, to you? Yeah, I didn't say. He, he probably maybe, didn't say fucking. Maybe no but expletives. But he oh, probably right. didn't have the expletives. Wow. But, I, but that was like a long, a long discursive <laughs> ramble I'd gone on about history of science and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I was teaching in that moment, I would have said like, or if I was your student, I would have used the Simpsons line of when are we getting to the fireworks factory? Exactly. Well, I was going to say really quick, you know, talking about that triple layer that you just described is so fascinating. And I think that that's also a really great lesson of one size does not fit all when it comes to learning and strengthening your comedy chops as a writer. That I think that especially as writers are starting out and aspiring to work in comedy, you know, when you're first starting, you want to go anywhere and figure it out. And, and the lessons that you learn maybe on one job that are, you know, maybe you work a late night job or you just get into that mode of writing or even within narrative TV, it can be different like Simpsons in office and one way of writing a joke does not work for the next one. And I think it's also a really great lesson of observing the voice of the show and serving that when you're on staff. I always think of like writer's rooms as um, it's like you're walking into a new restaurant every time. And the host is like, you know, have you been here before? We do things <laughs> a little differently here. And, and you're like, okay, great. Show me how you do it different. It's always yeah. so small. But yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a very great insight. I mean, it really is. It definitely is, uh, you know, huge variation from place to place and different styles and, you know, yeah. Like I remember, I worked with some guys, Rich Appel, who, who like run King of the Hill for a long time, and and they they were very they they called it the petard. They they always wanted to make sure that there was a petard. We want to petard our characters, which is a reference to uh, a character being hoist on his own petard. Or by I forget what the exact word, you know from Shakespeare, oh, character hoist on his own petard. The <laughs> idea that that every story has to have a point where the character does something that comes back to Biden, basically. We have to find the yeah. twist where it comes back to Biden. And so, you know, that gave that gives the shows, those kind of shows, a certain flavor. And, you know, when you're, you know, for a writer, when you're, you know, when you're starting out, I mean, things are different than they used to be, but 
when I was starting out, you know, when you were writing a spec script, the whole point was you had to show that you could, you could take a show and you could find its voice and you yeah. could analyze the script and say, well, here's what they do. You know, here's what Raymond does. Like everybody loves Raymond. There's always a point <laughs> in sort of somewhere in early act two where suddenly what the story is shifts. And you're like, oh, that's what this story is actually coming. And it was like, okay, everything before now it makes sense. It was working towards that, but actually there's a twist and there's a different emotional way that it went than you thought it was going to go. And, you know, if yeah, you're it's like a, a, every good documentary has that too. Yeah. So, and you sort of just got to find it and write that way. So that's, you know, where this is, this is, this is a story that's somewhat aggrandizing to me, but I'll tell it when I was, when I was in grad school, I took a course in writing from a guy called Russell Banks. And, um, you know, he, he was very big on this thing was, look, you find a writer that you like, you figure out what it is about the writer that you like, that that writer does, and then you steal it and you use it in your work. And one of his <laughs> exercises was, okay, like take um, Russ, Raymond Carver, take a Raymond, write a, write a Raymond Carver short story. So make it exactly as much as possible like Raymond Carver. And I was very good at that, it turned out. <laughs> I was super good. Kept ripping off <laughs> Raymond Carver, <laughs> and you know, they, people were like, "Oh, That's this is a really great, good job." Useful you know? way of learning how to write. Then they were like, "You go, okay, you now, now you're the guy from our class who goes to and, and reads the story." So I went to the big presentation, to the big meeting, and read the story out loud. And what what surprised me a great deal was how much people started laughing at it. Whereas I had not intended it to be a joke story at all. It's supposed to be kind of a tragic story, <laughs> and people were <laughs> laughing at it. Um, I'm not quite sure what that lesson was, really. Maybe just that, I, maybe just that tragedy is very hard for me to write. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or people tell you what you are versus you thinking that you are a certain way. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I wanted to briefly talk about that uh, idea of, of learning to write in the style of someone else, which, as you said, is obviously a, a great skill to have when you're trying to join an existing show because you obviously don't want to you know, you, you wouldn't get hired if you weren't able to do that. I relate to this in terms of uh, being someone who draws and then as someone who writes songs, you know, as you as you learn to draw, the first thing you do is you usually trace and you kind of get used to the, the shapes and you kind of learn uh, from that point, like, okay, I'm going to start doing my own style. And uh, songwriting, especially, there's a reason there are so many Beatles sound alikes. We all, <laughs> I think <laughs> it's just what every musician does. You listen to the Beatles and you try to write Paul McCartney songs and then eventually you may be sound different. <laughs> Usually it's yeah. because you're not as good as Paul McCartney. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is certainly something that I always recommend for people who are trying to learn how to write songs of just like, well, just first learn the cover and then write a song that has two chords that are different from the one that you're currently doing. And then instead of mm -hmm. going up, try going down and see if you could do something that is a ripoff, but sounds different. And it, it really helps. Although every once in a while I'll be writing a song and then I will have like written my own lyrics and it's really great. And then I'll realize like, Oh, this is a, this is a cheap trick song. Like, <laughs> I, I wrote a cheap trick song. <laughs> it could be hard. I, I would imagine with music I don't know anything about writing music um but Allie of course she just mentioned she she writes it and my husband does too and like I, you know with music there's so many beats that I imagine just get lobbed in the back of your head and they don't have a clean connection to a memory that, of a pre-existing song oh yeah which is how so you get the worms. vanilla ices of the world no. <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah I can only imagine I, I guess the same happens when you're writing that like, you know, maybe you, you write a whole script and you're like, ah, shit, 
I didn't realize that this is like a Mary Tyler Moore episode I watched 20 <laughs> years ago or something. Oh, I don't know. No, that would be the opposite way around. <laughs> is okay. What were some great Mary <laughs> yeah. Tyler Moore shows, and how can I take that plot? <laughs> yeah. And Simpsonize That's it. That's why you're successful. That <laughs> um, you come out swinging and stealing. Yeah. <laughs> Come out stealing. Come out stealing. That's, you know, oh, that's terrible advice. Don't fall out of it. But it does work. <laughs> um, obviously, yes, it's very, it's very easy and certainly happens all the time to sort of say, oh, you know, hey, here's an idea for a show. And, oh, this is a good emotion. And then I realize, oh, yeah, basically we did that emotion two or three times already. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe you can sort of shift the viewpoint a little bit and, you know, give it a little bit of a twist and it won't, you know, it'll illuminate a little bit of a different side of what was going on before. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Sort of what you hope for. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the spec scripts that you have written. So I uh, was going through an interview that you did in the past where you were talking about a somewhat jokey spec script that you did with Ken Keeler, uh, which was a Deep Space Nine script. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you could share a little bit about that, I think that'd be a great time. Yes. uh, That was at a time when I wasn't, I was trying, I was working towards maybe being a professional writer um, and Ken had already broken into the business and we were both uh, Star Trek fans. And so we decided to write a Deep Space Nine spec script. Now Deep Space Nine was a start for those who don't know, a Star Trek show that was set on a space station orbiting a planet called Bajor, far off in the you know, quad- quadrant of the galaxy that had just been sort of recovered by the Federation from a nasty race of aliens who were sort of the Klingon-y type aliens of that, of that particular genre. And so it was entirely set on a space station. And we just, and so we decided to write a, a spec script about it. And our spec script featured um, a couple of stand-up comedians, <laughs> sort of Laurel and Hardy pair, <laughs> who come to the space station to give a, a show and uh, a comedy show. And their notion of what is funny, being aliens, is entirely alien to everybody else's. And they managed, and they managed almost instantaneously, instantaneously to offend every single species on the space station and precipitate a giant galactic <laughs> fracas. And, uh, and the two, the two heroes of our show were called, I believe, is this possible? Xantor and Montro. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so funny sounding? I love it. Xantor <laughs> and Montro. I mean, they, they definitely were a sort of vaudeville, you know, Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Yeah. Laurel That's hilarious. <laughs> I think one of them was tall and skinny and one of them was sort of short and chubby. And uh, yeah, they were imprisoned and they just kept saying, but we're just trying to make jokes. I mean, <laughs> that just- seems like a very Simpsons-y premise too, of like it seeming like it's starting one way and then takes a sharp right turn into g- global warfare. Yes. <laughs> Cosmic, internet, I don't know, space warfare. <laughs> yes, space, uh, the battle of civilizations, kind of a clash of civilizations. Yeah. And I, the, the joke kind of was that nobody thought they were funny. <laughs> there was not one species on the station that thought they were funny. But they themselves said, look, we are, we are the, the stars of our home planet. <laughs> we're the most hilarious guys that there are. How can you not get us? Uh, too, so. too painfully relatable. Um, we're yeah. going to take, <laughs> take a quick break uh, and then um, I would love to uh, jump into um, your spec script that uh, ultimately got you hired at Futurama. Oh, uh, okay, so, sure. So we'll be right back. One. 
Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor, and I'm a medical enthusiast, and we create okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week, I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. Now, lately, we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday. Right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. (laughs) In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Shire. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! back oh my god what a great break Mm-mm. so fun what'd you what'd you do on the break julia i solved intergalactic warfare um, oh my god that's amazing the, through the beauty of comedy Ooh, uh, i, I became an insult of laughter oh that's nice uh jeff what did you do during our break i put one number in in my sudoku puzzle <laughs> so we're all I... doing the same level of thing <laughs> <laughs> how uh how often do you do Sudoku or any type of brain puzzles? How big a portion of your life does that take up? Yes, I probably do. I do one Sudoku a week. I just do the Sunday hard one. We do, my wife and I do the New York Times puzzle every day together as a, as a shared thing. And then um, I program <laughs> still. <laughs> I write computer programs. Hey, were you cautious about yeah how much you were going to reveal? We already know you're a nerd. We're not so going like, to give you a wedgie. You're here for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess, but still, one shouldn't like broadcast it to the skies. Because <laughs> then they're uh, going to ask you to program stuff. Yeah, right. got it, got that, it, got that it. has happened to me for sure. Really, really. Yeah, <laughs> I remember like there was an actress on a show who would come to me and say, "You know, my my laptop is frozen. Can you fix it?" Oh, my God. I have a PhD, which means that I can't solve anything practical. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great answer. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. It is always frustrating to have a talent that people want to be able to just ask you to use it all the time. I've always, since I was a very little kid, loved writing funny songs. And um, to to my family, it happens within a blink of an eye. Uh, and mm. so they always say like, oh, just write a little song for, for Opa and Oma. They'll love it. And like, that takes a long time. And I don't really have a lot of song lyrics for Oma and Opa. Like, I don't really know them that well. Um, and it's always funny. The, the, they just don't get it, how hard it could be. No. <laughs> just yeah. whip up a little spec script. Come on. I know. I was uh, I was very strategic with picking, you know, uh, paths artistically that could not be replicated for Christmas presents unless somebody <laughs> wants me. Yeah, to write them a TV script for their holiday, their birthday, what have you. 
I will do it, but <laughs> no one wants it. Uh, so speaking of scripts, uh, I would love to um, uh, learn a little bit about uh, the spec script that you wrote for Futurama. But before that, I kind of want to talk about the importance of connections. Uh, from what I understand, it seems that both in the scientific realm of your life, uh, doing research and um, it, like getting your job at AT&T Labs, um, and working in television, both were really bolstered by your personal connections that you made. And I think that um, LA is really um, known for being, oh, you got to meet people, you got to know the right person. But I also want to remind people that that seems to be true of any type of job. Like, can you talk a little bit about your experience of, um, you know, obviously you are talented and hardworking and brilliant, but how much, if any, was right place, right time? Yes, certainly uh, Futurama was right place, right time. There's no denying that. Um, I wouldn't say that was so true for my scientific career. I mean, I really, I mean, there are, you know, I went into grad school quite cold. It's not like I knew, I mean, yeah, you know, I just went to grad school and found an advisor and got a PhD. And I think after that, yes, I made professional connections naturally, which is what happens. And so those professional connections, I think that's you know what happens when you go to work, right? You meet yeah. professional <laughs> connections and you find people who are doing things that interest you and who are interested by the things that you're doing. And so that kind of determines a lot about where you end up. That's why I ended up at AT&T slash Bell Labs was because they were they were doing networking stuff and that happened to play into my interests. And so they knew about my work. I knew about their work at all. You know, that's why I didn't end up at, at, at MIT. Not that I had the brain power to end up at MIT. They were, you know, there's a, there's a real, there's a hierarchy, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. I'm, I'm a plebe who is, uh, I went to Chapman university and uh, before that went to art school. So I don't, this is so exotic and foreign to me. Oh, I'm yeah. just like, I what books do you read? Like, yeah. What? yeah. I, I, I dropped out of Cal State Long Beach, so I certainly am starry-eyed learning about academia. Although every yeah. single other person in my family, on my mom's side at least, went to Berkeley. Um, and so I was the first to break the chain. <laughs> so Berkeley is another kind of place that's very high up in the academic firmament. And that, that, it, that would be out of my reach, at least at that point where I was. So, um, But there are other places that, you know, they were just doing different kinds of science and I wouldn't, it's just, it's just not where I would have wanted to go. So I think, you know, the, I would say the computer science, the, those, those were logical. Futurama was very, definitely very much a, a situation of being in the right place at the right time, basically, where um, about at the time that we were, my wife and I were moving to the West Coast anyway, because she was taking up a, a position at my wife's also a professor. She was taking up a position at um, UC San Diego as a professor of biology there. So we wanted to, we were going to move to the West Coast anyway. And it was right at that time, like I said, Ken and I had, we, we worked on this, on this, as you pointed out, highly misguided <laughs> Deep Space Nine spec script. <laughs> um, and so those are your words. We think it's very guided. Well, yeah, okay. well guided. <laughs> we, we eventually went into pitch to Star Trek and, and they were highly dismissive of all our ideas. Really? But anyway, yeah. So it was it was very much sort of serendipity that it was right the time that Futurama was starting up 
And they said, you know, we're looking for science nerds for this show. And people who have some kind of writing chops who and are science nerds. And you should, you should, Jeff, you know, if you want Jeff to give it a try, you should give it a try. This is this is your chance. And so it was very much like and Ken, who's like I say, uh, he's he's the only person with whom I've written both comedy scripts and scientific papers. Um, <laughs> well, Allie and I too. So, you know, you got some competition. <laughs> but just, it's, it's, he's the only guy I, that I've written both those things with. So it was, sure. um, yes, it was very much serendipity and, and good luck for me that he was starting out there. So I was very fortunate to break into Hollywood relatively easily compared to what most people go through. Because sometimes people ask me, how, you know, do you have some advice about how to get into writing? And I'm, <laughs> I have very bad advice about how to get into writing, right? <laughs> Just start up, get a PhD, write a, write a, write a yeah. serious paper about uh, data compression with a friend of yours. He then moves on to become a very successful comedy writer <laughs> and start yeah, to show that, that just happens to work easy. for you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... That, right. that sounds hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Other people start out as like an intern or like they start by a writer's assistant, you know, writer's or, assistant mm-hmm. and then they make their way up. Um, uh, and that is hard too, but I would say that probably attaining a PhD requires <laughs> a different level of brain activity. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And also just writing a spec. So wait, you you wrote the Deep Space Nine spec, which then got you in the door for the actual Star Trek people, which I feel does not happen anymore. <laughs> A, because I feel like there's so many comedy writers now or aspiring writers. And maybe I'm just like speaking from this current present day perspective because it's the one I know best. But I feel like, it, you know, there's just too many opportunities and nobody's reading specs of the actual show that they're specking. And yeah. almost like run from it now. They don't want to touch it. You know, it's just a different way of doing business. I feel like in the '90s, especially, you'd be able to write a spec on something, and sometimes they would buy that spec. Yeah. For the show, yes. which is like I don't know, it's just so, so wild. But then yeah. for the spec to get on Futurama, was that the same spec, or was it a spec of Futurama? I wrote two specs Simpson scripts, and I sent the first one to Ken. And he very politely <laughs> shredded it in front of my face. It was, it was, and it was, it was really not very, it was really quite bad. Um, it, the, the premise was that Homer invented a new donut. I'm not, I, should, I should be embarrassed to even say it, but just so you know that I'm not a good writer. That was the first, that was my first idea was he invents a new donut. And then. That sounds like it has potential. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and then the second one was that uh, the spec I wrote for, for, for Futurama that Ken liked more was basically that um, Bart he becomes the, a candidate to be the next Dalai Lama, um, which it turned out that King of the Hill did exactly the same plot. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I think after That's I wrote like my spectrum, yeah. I didn't know about it, but after the, after I wrote my spectrum, I found out that they'd done the same plot with Bobby. Oh, wow. Mm. He was, <laughs> I buy that for Bobby more. Sorry to kick you when you're down but but you know it it, it, it got us it got there's the family out of the uh, out of the house at least got them into the yeah, Himalayas. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's was great. something and so that spec is uh, ultimately what kind of helped uh cement the decision for you to join the show yes yeah david david liked it enough to sort of give me a chance to come and 
work. He basically gave me a, a probation. He said, "Come and you know work for the fall, basically on the on on, on Futurama. Just come and be a staff writer. We'll we'll try right. you out." And he, it's not like he decided immediately. He took four months to think it over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in those four months, were you still considering other areas of uh, either showbiz or other type of research uh, or lab jobs? Uh, what what was that? process like for you? You had just moved out with your wife who was, uh, you said, a biologist looking for work. And so during that time when you're not really sure what your future holds, were you kind of leaning one way or another or putting eggs in one basket? No, I, I, um, it was, it was, it felt like a turning point in my life a little bit. I still had the job at AT AT&T labs. So I was actually sort of telecommuting and traveling back and forth between California and New Jersey a lot. Uh, but I was also, that, I was also, so Futurama, that was like 1999, 2000. So it was right during the dot-com days when the first dot-com thing was happening, the dot-com return to the bubble. So I actually also was spent some time interviewing out at companies in Silicon Valley. Work at this upstart called Google. <laughs> yes. No, in fact... In retrospect, <laughs> I know I was going to say, do you regret the path you took? I mean, you're doing well now. But. There were colleagues of mine who were at this new thing called Google, and oh, I, yeah. I mean, I and I knew, I mean, I because I'd actually spent time working with the people who did Alta Vista, which maybe you guys have never heard of, but that was the, no, I I used it. Yeah, that was the that was the search <laughs> engine. That was the big search engine before Google took over everything. And and so I knew the I knew the Alta Vista people and and some of them went over to Google. So it was not it, I didn't pursue it, but if I, it would have been a, a, a yes, regrets, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not. Thanks for dragging up the regrets, guys. I know, I know. Hey, listen, you're the smartest person on this Zoom, except yeah. for maybe the cat that's roaming around in the background. Right, the cat. Yeah. Um. So I, I, we talked a little bit to uh, David about kind of the early days of Futurama and how there was certainly a fear of cancellation. Um. So y- you've written your first, you know, season or uh, half season, uh, but however long you mm-hmm. were. Uh, and then was there a time that you? I, I think I read that there was actually a time that you had kind of made a decision of like, hey, this was fun. Um, I tried it out, uh, but I think I'm going to go back to yes. uh, the, the job. And I believe uh, at that point, or maybe a little bit later, if you could correct me on the timeline, David explained like, well, we got picked up and no, I want you to come back. Yep. That's that's pretty much exactly what happened. Um, I, I worked at Futurama for the fall. And uh, so I, I started there probably in September. I, I basically I took a leave of absence from AT&T. They thought I was half crazy, but they, <laughs> but my boss said, I think you're, I think you're crazy, but I'm also jealous. And, <laughs> crazy like a fox. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but, but, but I, I took all my vacation and they, they gave me a little leave of absence. I went there and I worked and we got to the end of the season. And I really, I, I personally had no sense of whether or not, David thought I was any good and would even want to hire me back. But it did seem like the show, there was no pickup and it seemed, and we knew that Fox wasn't a giant fan of the show or didn't seem to be a giant fan of the show. And so I went back to AT&T. I went back to my comfortable old life and that's exactly what I said. It was like, <laughs> you know, it was really fun and super eye-opening, uh, but whew, 
back in the comfortable <laughs> embrace of the, you know, the highly unstressed corporate America, corporate America, scientific life. corporate America. Yeah. <laughs> I was in fact oblivious to the fact that the whole thing was going to blow up in about two years, which is what happened. <laughs> um, and that comfortable life fell apart, but, Oh, wow. But at that time it felt like, Oh, it's, you know, ah, what a relief. It's so stressful. And then, and then, yeah, David called up and said, um, Yep, Joe's coming back, and I want to pick up your contract. It sounded at the time, or at least at least I I took it to be like, oh, I signed a contract, I've got to go. And, and of course, now I know that in fact, if I said to Dave, I don't want to come back, Dave, he would have said no problem. Right. Like it's not like right. he would have ever ever pressured <laughs> me to come back. And uh, <laughs> it's not like he was desperate to have me back on the show. But he was he was happy to have me back on the show, of course. So. But then I really had to really, really, really make the decision. And I spent a long time standing and pacing on balconies and walking around streets. And in those days, uh, I would, when I was in a stressful situation, I would buy a pack of cigarettes and I would smoke it. <laughs> and it help me. Help, help, I thought it would help me decide, but it was just, it, was it just hurt your lungs. It just made me get more stressful. <laughs> it just hurt my lungs, and the nicotine just made me even more freaked out. But whatever. Uh, so, so obviously, there's a big culture shock in a lot of ways from um, those jobs. Uh, not least of which uh, would be the the schedule. I imagine. I imagine that 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 was a difficult thing to kind of get used to. What ultimately uh, pushed you in the direction of following the path of? Uh, creative and writer instead of uh, what you obviously went to school for and were really good at. And you're good at both. <laughs> I'm not saying I know, that. I was going to say. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't an academic star and I was never going to be one, I don't think, but I was good at it. And I, I could have had a very comfortable and rewarding career like my yeah. dad did. But it was exciting. Oh, my God, it was exciting. <laughs> Even though it was just, it was a cartoon, which is perhaps the least glamorous thing yeah. you can possibly do in Hollywood, except for a puppet show, which is what I did. <laughs> hey, but puppet shows are coming back. I just I just did a puppet show. Um, so it was just so exciting and so different. And also it was convenient because then I was living, I'd be living on the West Coast. Um it, it was just something that I'd always wanted. I wanted for a long time. And I sort of, I guess I felt like I understood what my old career was going to be like. And right. I didn't understand what this new one was going to be like. And I just, you know, in the end, you, it's, it's, it's very hard to sort of say, okay, here's a rational series of choices that explain why it didn't did that. It's like, <laughs> it's not like junior high school where I say, okay, let's, let's practice doing pros and cons of your decisions. It's, it right. comes down to just a gut, a gut sense gut of feeling. like, can I go back? If I, can I, can I say no to this and go back to my unstable job and, and feel like I didn't miss out on something very exciting? And the answer was I couldn't. So I just, I just did it. I love that. I, I, I think there's something uh, romantic in a way about uh, being willing to do the thing that, you know, it's, it's, there's an uncertainty and that's one of the things that, that draws you in. And, you know, fortunately, uh, TV writing, uh, can be quite lucrative. So if you do, if you do end up making it there, at least is a promise of some stability. Um, right. uh, but still it, that is a, that is a bold and daring choice that you took in a lot of ways. And I think that's really cool. I think, uh, um, of the guests that we've had so far, for the most part, the paths have been slightly more traditional in terms of kind of always knowing 
this is what I wanted to do. And although there was schooling, it was always kind of pointing towards comedy um, pretty mm-hmm. early on. Uh, and so it's really fascinating to kind of know that you really had two choices as an adult, because there are people who have those choices, but then in college, they might decide, okay, I'm going to focus now on the comedy world. Uh, and I think it's really, really cool. I, I really like that uh, it's a story of really, do I go left or right? And right. there's something very dramatic and cool about that. And not only that, but teaching too is really interesting. I'm Oh, yeah. Maybe because I, I'm currently part-time teaching at my old alma mater. And so, you know, I love doing it, but I would never have been able to do it without the, um, without COVID and without the Mm. Zoom era of teaching during COVID. And so, you know, I think, especially when you teach anything, it, you instantly, and I think you even touched on it already, like you instantly get this feel of like, well, I could just continue doing this. And, but is that also sort of like an admission of defeat in a way where you're like, (laughs) you know, those who can't, you know, basically it can be really hard, especially if you're, you know, excluding the person who yelled at you in your class. But when you're, you know, face to face with like the next young generation of movers and shakers and, um, it, it can be harder to be like, no, thank you. I will not fill your brains with you know, everything you need. I'm going to go and leave you. Um, I don't know. It, it can be a really hard decision. No, well, teaching is, I mean, I'm glad you're doing some teaching. It's, it's, it's fun and it, it can be very rewarding. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes <laughs> it can sort of feel like, oh, this thing again. And, uh, and some people love it. They just, all they do, they want to teach. And, and I leave teaching sometimes. I know. It's hard. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a what can I say? Yeah, just like I said, sometimes the, <clears throat> your your heart or your gut just says, this is what you're going to do. <laughs> right. End, That's sort of how I feel about it, too. I'm like, bitches, I'm busy. I got <laughs> I'm going to touch down here. And also, yeah. I'm teaching writing for animation, so it's not hard. <laughs> you know, I gotta go and continue doing that writing for animation. Anyway, thanks for indulging me on that. <laughs> oh, that's great. I think following your gut is a is a really good lesson uh, to to kind of wrap up the show on. Um, we we always ask our guests, you know, what what is uh, what is a bit of advice that you could give um, the listeners to the show. And it, you know, for for me at least, what I've gotten out of uh, this the most has really just been, you know. <laughs> Pros and cons lists can be helpful, but really, ultimately, it's what is your gut telling you to do? And um, it, it reminds me of one of the, the lessons that my dad has imparted on me, which I'm sure is something that is more universal and not too specific to my dad. But basically, on your deathbed, um, you know, you're going to be thinking about uh, the things that you didn't do uh, as opposed to regretting the things that you did do. And so if you could have the foresight to look ahead and, and ask yourself, like, would I regret not doing this? If the answer is yes, I would. <laughs> it feels like that's yeah. the thing that you should do. Yep. Yeah. That's a very, very wise point of view. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's also from your story, it feels like it's not, it's also not like what you could or quote unquote should do, it's what you want to do as well. Because you could be still working at AT&T, you could still be a professor at Yale. Um, and maybe there are people in your life, like your mom, as you mentioned, who think you should be doing that. Um, but it is, yeah, to kind of like merge with Allie's point too. It's like, what do you want to be doing at that at the end of that day? And, and you know, 
like there is some stability with being a writer on a Fox show in primetime, yes. but maybe generally <laughs> as a writer in TV and perhaps you've experienced this, there is instability with like, you know, it's not a consistent job usually. No, so I mean, I large was, gaps. yeah, you're quite right. I was super lucky to uh, end up on a show that it's just has gone on and on and on and on. It's like having tenure. It's as close to having tenure as you can yeah, have in the, that is in, true. In the TV <laughs> the world. The only one. Not um, even SNL. I was going to say, like, what other ones are still rolling? It's like. Yeah. I mean, you know, SNL's Family Guy rolls on. Tenure. I mean, cartoon. Oh, yeah. The animated shows have, have generally been successful. Bob's Burgers rolls on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's rare to find one that goes on, you know, because uh, especially with real human actors, they tend to grow up get old that becomes a, a definitely a problem uh well jeff thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really enlightening and super fun to talk to you about your career and how you got here um at the risk of you having been asked this a thousand times which character of futurama uh or the simpsons do you connect to the most or enjoy writing for the most futurama I mean, it'd be very easy for me to say Professor Farnsworth. That would be inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> Although he is on my, he was on my Futurama business card. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Actually, Bill Odenkirk and I had a battle over that. Only one, only only one person could have it on their card for some reason. I don't know why that was the rule, <laughs> but that was the rule. You could, everyone got one. Oh, card. the Highlander rule. I understand. <laughs> I've seen that in contracts before. <laughs> <laughs> only one can survive. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but on Futurama, probably Bender was a was. I mean, yeah, you couldn't go wrong with Bender because he was smart, dumb, which I sort of yeah. feel is, you know, you always have to remind yourself that you think you're smart, but really you're you're pretty dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, Logic based, one smart, step dumb. ahead, and yet he blacks out a lot of those key memories. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good combo. Excellent. Uh, well, Jeff, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Um, do you have anything that you uh, would like to promote? Or uh, are you on social media at all? Uh, can people follow you I, in any place? I, avo- I avoid social media. I will promote uh, last year and this year I've been running a show uh, called Spitting Image. It's a reboot of a classic British show. It's actually oh, – cool. it's, 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 it's – um, it's kind of, it was in its day, it was the SNL of the UK. And then it was went on hiatus for a bunch of years. And then the plan was to bring it back in a US version. And so I got hired on it to do it. And then it turned out that we couldn't find a US distributor. So it, was, <laughs> it, ran, in, it ran this past season in the UK. But it's, many of the shows are available on BritBox. It's a satirical show. It's based on puppet caricatures of real people and politicians and we did a whole bunch of stuff with, you know, awesome. Trump and stuff like that. So if you get a chance, check it out. BritBox rules, too. I, I would just like to plug BritBox for everybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. And hey, Julia, where can people find you? <gasps> Thanks so much for asking, Allie. You can find me at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Hey, thanks so much for asking. You could find me at Allie Gertz and all the things, and you could find us at Simpsons Pod. Yes. And Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We are a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash join to contribute. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. (laughs) Smell you later, guys. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.